Brilliant. Um, the handouts, there are more handouts at the back if you haven't got one. It would be a deep irony if I failed to pray at the start of this seminar, so I shall do so. Lord God, we uh, thank you and praise you that right now you are listening to us, for you are a loving God. Father, we, we simply don't understand how you can be absolutely sovereign, such that we only exist moment by moment, because you will us each second to continue to exist. And yet at the same time, you tell us to pray because it makes a difference and things happen. Uh, Father, any of us who claim to understand that those theological things are lying. But we thank you that we have examples like the life of George Miller just to show us what it looks like. And so we pray that we would be encouraged to be a praying people as we look at this extraordinary life. Amen. Amen. I don't know if you um, remember um, dear old Richard Dawkins. Uh, one of his uh, arguments um, in The God Delusion and in some internet discussions afterwards was that prayer doesn't work and you can prove it objectively. And his way of doing it was he said, well, you pick the most prayed for people and you see whether their lives show a dramatic difference. So he said, Catholic clergy, they have to pray for them. So they ought to be, Catholic cardinals ought to be the healthiest, most prosperous, happiest people in the planet. And actually they're not. So you can prove prayer doesn't work because the most prayed for people makes no difference. It's a, and you, you find on his, um, on his websites, that's, a, that's an argument that he, he cites again and again. Um, <laughs> There are counterexamples, and perhaps the greatest of all, in my mind, is the life of um, George Muller. Um, now, George Muller, between the years of 1836 and 1898, he fed, clothed, and housed 10,024 orphans. He established 117 schools, educating 120,000 children, and he gave to Christian publishing and missions work a sum of money that in today's equivalent would be about 128 million pounds. And he only ever asked for money from one person, God. He never, ever published a single word of the need. He just spoke to God and all of that happened. Um, he had a particular objective in mind when he began this extraordinary venture. He said, I judge myself bound to be the servant of Christ, uh, of the Church of Christ, in particular on one point on which I had obtained mercy, namely in being able to take God at his word and to rely on it. It needed to be something which could be seen even by the natural eye. And so, do you, you see what he's saying? There? He's saying, look, I, I took it that my life's task was to be an example to the Church of Christ in some way which was observable, and this was the particular way. Now, if I, a poor man, simply by prayer and faith, obtained without asking any individual, that was his emphasis, the means for establishing and carrying on an orphan house, it might be instrumental in strengthening the faith of the children of God, besides being a testimony to the consciences of the unconverted of the reality of the things of God. He said, I'm going to prove you can trust God. That's basically what he said. I'm going to prove it. He is the counterexample to Richard Dawkins. Now, as we go through, we'll, we'll talk about money um, a lot in the life of George Muller, and it loses some of the impact if you don't know the sums. Um, so uh, those of you who are good with mental arithmetic will be fine, otherwise uh, you might need your phones out. But one quid in 1860 is about 155 quid today. So 100 quid is 15,000 more or less, okay? One quid is about 155 quid today. Okay, 
Firstly, the unlikely backstory. Um, in 18, on the 18th of December 1821, a dishonest, lazy young man was arrested for failing to pay an innkeeper. And as he sat in the police cells, he reflected that he had a pretty wasteful life. At the age of 15, he stayed out all night drinking with his friends and returned home to find his mother had died while he was on a bender. And it made no difference to him whatsoever. He continued just to live a pretty immoral life. A life of, as he put it, gross immorality. He was so greedy and deceitful with money that when he'd uh, been caught in, in quite a publicly sinful way and his father sent him to confess and with the money for the penance, he defrauded the priest by not owning up to everything so he could pocket the rest of the cash. But he resolved in 1820 to turn over a new leaf and devote himself to study rather than wasteful pursuits such as piano, guitar, reading novels and drinking. Uh, but he broke the resolutions within a day of making them. Uh, he spent Christmas 1821 and New Year in jail. And his father um, eventually had to pay the debts that he'd incurred for his bad behaviour then and welcomed him home with a severe beating. I like his father. The, uh, um, he tried to make amends and publicly he started to live a very different life from that point on. But he said, still in secret, I was habitually guilty of great sins. And he just couldn't stop lying to get money, because money was what Muller was all about. So um, at 17, he, uh, he got given some money for the university term, which he spent. But what he did was uh, he showed the university director um, how pleased he was to have received this money from his dad. And then he spent it and then smashed the locks on his guitar case where he kept the money. He hadn't given up guitar, obviously. And claimed it had been stolen, and the university reimbursed him. So... He, he won doubly. A university was pretty terrible for him. By all accounts, said there were just too many temptations and too many ways to spend money. And so he wound up miserable at his constant moral failings and broke, even selling clothes to get money. And then one afternoon, um, after drinking 10 pints in the pub, yes, in an afternoon, <laughs> not an evening, he drank 10 pints, he met Beta, who was a quiet young man from his hometown. And his life changed on this introduction, although it wasn't promising. So he was bored and looking to make some money. So he convinced Beta that they should go on a journey, um, on a little tour around Switzerland in the holidays, which were soon to come. And he helped Beta um, write some fraudulent letters to get uh, travel documents from their parents. And then he offered to organise the trip for Beta and a few friends. And he offered to organise it because he was planning on telling them all it cost, everything cost more than it did. And he held the money. Um, and so he defrauded his friends and had a wonderful time. But when they got back, Beta invited him to a Bible study at the home of a man named Herr Wagner. And Muller felt a total fraud for, um, for attending, but he was amazed at the warmth and especially at the reality of the praying at the end of the Bible study. And he wrote this, All we saw on our journey to Switzerland and the Alps and all our former pleasures are as nothing compared with what I saw that evening. And very quickly, he was changed. Um, he said this, It pleased God to teach me something of the meaning of that precious truth. God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. I understood something of the reason why the Lord Jesus died on the cross and suffered such agonies in the Garden of Gethsemane, even that thus, bearing the punishment due to us, we might not bear it ourselves. And therefore, apprehending in some measure the love of Jesus for my soul, I was constrained to love him in return. What all the exhortations and precepts of my father and others could not effect, what all my resolutions could not bring about to renounce a life of sin and profligacy, I was enabled to do 
by the love of Jesus. The individual who desires to have his sins forgiven must seek it through the blood of Jesus. The individual who desires to get power over sin must likewise seek it through the blood of Jesus. Now he was determined, having been converted like that, that he was going to be a full-on, radical, Jesus-following disciple. Um, and so he, he said, I'm not going to be divided between love for the world and love for God. Instead, he said, there was a day, this day, when I died, utterly died to George Muller, to his opinions, his preferences, his tastes and will, died to the world and its approval or censure, died to the approval or blame of even my brethren and friends, and since then have studied to show myself approved only unto God. Uh, within seven weeks of his conversion, he was going to the seminar in there because um, he decided, right, I'm going to become a missionary. That's what I should do with my life. His father was absolutely furious, having spent so much on his education and cut off all his financial support. So how on earth was he going to live for two years to complete his studies with no finances before he could go on the mission field? And it's interesting... At this moment, for the first time, the scheming young greedy man learned to trust God. Uh, he started to pray, and the answer to the prayer came very, very quickly. A group of Americans arrived at the university. Americans are very generous people. We love having you. And um, the university professor said, look, why not, um, they need a tutor for English, and offered Muller, who spoke very good English. And uh, the Americans paid him very well, and he was able to tutor them and to, um, and to finish his degree. Uh, he started serving God in his spare time with all the reckless enthusiasm of a young convert. Those of you who, uh, who were converted um, at university and immediately went home to tell your parents um, you're terrible sinners and you need to put your trust in Jesus, as um, <laughs> sometimes happens, um, you, you'll, you'll understand this, this story. Quote, Once I met a beggar in the fields and spoke to him about his soul, but when I perceived it made no impression on him, I spoke more loudly. And when he still remained unmoved, I quite bellowed in his ear till at last I went away, seeing it was of no use. <laughs> um, now, all sorts of opportunities he applied for for missions work didn't quite pan out, but he kept pursuing things. And eventually, he loved the Bible so much that he learned the original languages, uh, Greek and Hebrew. And his study of Hebrew put him in touch with the church mission to the Jews in London. And they called him to, to come and serve there. But he couldn't come because he's got to complete a year's military service and he was denied an exemption. Um, so he, whatever happened, he was going to have to do that. But then God answered unexpectedly as he prayed. Uh, he got taken seriously ill and passed unfit for the army. And instead of grumbling at God's unkindness that he should suffer this illness, he rejoiced at God's answer to his prayer that enabled him to, to go and serve as a missionary in London. And he arrived in London on the 19th of March, 1829. And again, illness provided guidance as a serious infection meant he had to leave London to recover in Devon in the summer where he met Henry Craik, who would have a profound impact on the direction of his life. And Henry, as he got to know him, uh, became aware that there was a, a post going at um, Ebenezer Chapel in Tenmouth, and Muller was asked to be the pastor there and accepted it. Now, he was, uh, he was pretty busy pastoring, but he found, life, uh, uh, found time to, to marry um, this lady. You can see how happy they look on their wedding day. Um, <laughs> that's... Um, uh, that's, that's blissful joy in the 1820s. I don't, this name, I don't know why, I think that's nothing to do with them. It was just in the internet image. Um, but So he, um, he, he got himself married, and they quickly took a momentous decision together as a married couple that would shape their lives, their ministry, and his legacy. The former money lover decided he would never take a salary. They would uh, take Luke 12.33 as directed personally to them, sell your possessions and give to the poor. 
And they, by their turn, would live by the words that led up to Luke 12, 33. Do not set your heart on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it. For the pagan world runs after such things, and your father knows them, and knows well that you need them. But seek his kingdom, and these things will be given to you as well. As you look back at the, the beginning of their married life and this adventure of faith, Muller wrote, This has been the means of letting us see the tender love and care of our God over his children, even in the most minute of things, in a way which we never experimentally knew before. And in particular, God has made known to us, more than we fully knew before, that he is a prayer-hearing God. In other words, putting themselves in a situation where their only hope was God meant that what they sang and stated they believed, they now experienced. And they talk of the sweetness of finding those words to be true. And slowly but surely, God confirmed he was indeed behind their decision. So I don't think... um, that uh, what they decided to do, uh, anybody would say every Christian is obliged to do. But they felt it was what they should do. And as they pursued it, God confirmed it by he kept on answering their prayers. Now, Muller was extremely careful not to apply subtle pressure and very slow to uh, accept money. It's not like um, he immediately set up a, um, a just giving page and you know, the money flooded in. He would just not tell anybody because he wanted it only to be explainable by God. And so at one point early on, God let their finances run right, right down to the last eight shillings. They prayed for money, and that very morning, some, uh, some members of the church came and uh, came to visit them and asked them how they were doing. And one of the men um, asked Muller repeatedly whether he had a need of money. And Muller just kept changing the conversation because he thought, I, I mustn't subtly pressure people by telling them that we're, we're out of money. And so he literally just kept changing the subject. And the guy said, so how are you doing financially? Because I, I know you don't take a salary. You know, what lovely weather we're having this morning. Um, soft, you hear a cow mooing in the field. You know, and it, it, it a bit ridiculous. And then, but as they went to leave, the man stopped, pulled out an envelope from his pocket and thrust it in Miller's hands as they left and gave them all the money they needed for the next wee while. And after a little while, he asked the elders to install a box in the chapel and simply prayed that God would and said, if you could just empty the box once a week. Um, we don't want any sign put on it, just a box with a hole in it. And people started putting money in the box. The problem was the elders kept forgetting to empty the box, so they had some very, very tight times, but God always provided. Um, so uh, there, was a, there was one time um, Muller prayed that a particular person would be, yeah, one of the, um, the elders would remember to open the box because we need the money. And the next morning at breakfast, the Mullers had just enough butter for a friend and a relative who were staying with them for their bread. They made no mention of the circumstances, lest the, the visitors should feel un- uncomfortable. But after the morning meeting, uh, the prayed-for elder quite unexpectedly opened the box and gave Muller all the money that was in it. He said, I, my wife and I couldn't sleep last night worrying that you might be in need, and so we had to come and open the box. Another time, uh, as, they were, as they were sitting down, um, they had no... No money, and so they prayed for a dinner which wasn't on the table. They prayed, thank you, Lord, for all you've provided, with an empty table, just plates and knives and forks. And there was a knock on the door, and a parcel arrived with a fine ham for them and their guest. <laughs> in the days when you'd send a, a, leg of, a leg of pig in the post. Um, but there we go. That's, that's the least strange thing about the story. Um, and their faith started to grow, that God was indeed behind this decision. 
But one of the great things is, um, well, actually, it, it is what you're saying. The faith grew little by little. Muller doesn't do what he does later in his life at this point. It just grows. First, it's just him. Then it's him and his wife. And slowly, it's this is how we'll live, not just to start, but we're going to carry on like this and keep going and keep going. Faith grows like a muscle. There's a binary sense of faith. You either have faith in Christ or you don't. But faith is also like a muscle that we exercise. Couch to 5K, you... you you start by exercising faith, and you find God is reliable. But um, one of the most important things at this point to realise is George Muller was a German. Um, have we got any Germans in the house? Not in this room. Now, why is that important? Um, because of racial stereotypes. Uh, the Germans being a meticulous people, and George Muller was, if you like, a stereotypical, very meticulous German man. And so he kept precise records of every prayer he prayed and every penny that was given, right down to the halfpenny. And so we have these enormous books of recording every single answer in the most minute detail, which is the, uh, an extraordinary record for 70 years of God's faithfulness. So, um, the unlikely backstory, the radical change, and now the life's work of orphans. Uh, so Dickens wrote Oliver Twist in 1837 uh, because he was appalled at the terrible, shameful conditions of orphans in Britain due to legal changes uh, that drove them um, into workhouses that were often as bad as prisons and where, sadly, the majority of the orphans would end up. So in 1834, there was accommodation for 3,600 orphans in the whole country. That was it. Uh, but it was only in horrible workhouses. By contrast, there were 7,500 orphans under the age of nine in prisons. It was an appalling, appalling state of um, affairs. And so um, he wrote Oliver Twist largely to, to expose this terrible thing. But the idea of a, a private charitable orphanage where the, the orphans would be loved was a complete novelty. And it wasn't Dickens that changed that. Dickens exposed the misery of, of the situation, but he had no answer for it. It was George Muller who transformed this country. And he wrote in his diary in, on the, November the 21st, 1835, Today I have had it very much impressed upon my heart, not, not longer merely to think about the establishment of an orphan house, but actually to set about it. And I have very much been in prayer respecting it in order to ascertain the Lord's mind. He spent days thinking and praying and praying and praying. But his great concern was this project might just be about the glory of George Muller rather than the glory of God. And so he wanted to humble himself and submit himself to God and examine himself. And he submitted himself to friends like Henry and said, look, tell me, what do you see in me? Do you think this is right? He wasn't just a man who, well, when I pray, God answers, so I'll do what I think's right. <coughs> he humbled himself to the, the opinions of others. Now, there's another um, key thing to mention. Um, Muller was also exercised, not just by the treatment of orphans in this country, he was also very exercised as he looked out at the way that Christians lived in general, Christian businessmen. He saw that Christian businessmen were as uh, sharp in their practice as non-Christians because they said, you just can't survive in business unless you behave the way the world does. You can't take a day of rest and you can't be honest. And he was very exercised that, look, God is real. Surely if we take him at his word and do what he says, things will work. And so he wanted others to learn that God could be trusted. He wrote, 
the three chief reasons I have for establishing an orphan house are, one, that God may be glorified, should he be pleased to furnish me with the means, in its being seen, that it's not a vain thing to trust him, and thus the faith of his children may be strengthened. So God will be glorified as people see God answer prayer. Two, the spiritual welfare of the fatherless and motherless children. He cared about the children. They weren't just a means to an end. And three, the temporal welfare of them. Okay, he wanted people to know God is real. You can take him at his word. So serve him and do what he says. And so in um, December 1835, relying on Psalm 81.10, he prayed, Dear God, you will please provide the premises. £1,000, so it's that... Um, Hundred and fifty, was that one and a half million, and suitable staff. Sorry, um, hundred and fifty thousand, and suitable staff to look after the children. And bit by bit, the money came in, uh, and soon enough, the first children arrived at Wilson Street, number six Wilson Street. This is the uh, the orphanage here, um, the first orphanage they opened uh, on the eleventh of April, eighteen thirty six. Um, here's the um, his children doing. I'm not sure quite what they're doing, but, they're, but they, all look, uh, they all look like they've been fed and they're all um, dressed remarkably smartly. Um, uh, Sunday school could look like that, perhaps. Um, and here are, here are some of the children in the later, in the later dormitories in the, uh, in the bigger orphanages. Um, and we'll come back to that one. Now, things were never plain sailing, and God tested his faith frequently. He knew that if he was going to prove what he wanted to the church at large... There would have to be testing times. And he wrote, Our desire, therefore, is not that we might be without trials of faith, but that the Lord graciously would be pleased to support us in the trial, that we might not dishonour him by distrust. Now, um, if you read his book, and I really, really would heartily commend, you will read it in one sitting. It is just so good. The Roger Steers biography of George Muller. Um, but let me tell just um, a few of the stories. So in, um, in 1838, at one point they found they only had enough food for one day left. And they met to pray. Nothing happened. And so they went back to work, but Muller returned to pray, and still nothing. And he began to grow despondent at the thought of hungry children at breakfast when the doorbell rang. And there was a woman with a cheque that more than covered the needs for the next week. And they were able to buy the food just in time for the meal. And June 1840, funds were again running low, when he accompanied a group of missionaries who were uh, going to Bristol docks um, to head out on the mission field. And as they got to the... Uh, to the ship, you know, when you're really short of funds, hanging out with missionaries about to leave is not—it's not what you call the smart move. <laughs> you know, these are not investment bankers; they're missionaries about to go on the mission field. And they got to the ship, and the and the head of this group of eight missionaries said, "Look, we've been given more than enough um, in the in our funding for the voyage. Will cost. You know, we have no needs on the voyage for the food is all provided. And for the first few months on the mission field, we have more than enough. When we need more, we'll pray." you have what we don't need, and gave him £20, which again, more than covered them for the next couple of months. Um, shortly afterwards, they ran out of food and were down to the last two and a half penny of funds, having bought the morning's supplies, when a woman arrived with £5. But eventually, Muller became convinced that Wilson Street was just not large enough, and so he prayed as he became convinced that they should seek to build something really large, a place that could take 300 and eventually 600 orphans at once. But he wasn't going to tr stop trusting God just because of the vast scale of this project. And so in 1846, he went to speak to the owner of um, a fantastic tract of land up on Ashley Down in Bristol. 
and it seemed a perfect place but there was no way they could afford the price that was being charged for the land so he went to see the man but the man wasn't in he went to try and see him in his office he just left his office and so Miller decided well obviously the Lord doesn't want me to see him today he went back the next day and the man said overnight I felt the Lord change my heart I'm going to sell it to you for £120 per acre instead of £200 per acre and he was given uh, this amazing place and the money then just poured in in all sorts of miraculous ways uh, architect just felt burdened to travel down from london to design it for free and um, people offered gave them money materials work supply and eventually they built these two of these enormous grand orphanages which are still standing today they're no longer orphanages and hundreds and hundreds thousands eventually were loved housed fed and educated there um, I think though perhaps the, the, best, uh, the best known and most favourite anecdote for most people of Muller is that is, uh, later on, you know, this is an enormous operation, we're talking 600 children, <laughs> um, and so the needs become enormous at this point. And at one point, but they're still only operated by prayer and never telling people what the needs were. It's not like they published, this is our budget, do with it what you will. They didn't even do that. He kept meticulous accounts, which people could see, but he never gave a statement of need. And uh, one morning, they, uh, they sat down to breakfast, and there was no food left. There was nothing, absolutely nothing. And so he prayed. He gave thanks for what the Lord would provide, as he always did. At which point, there's a knock, and the baker appears. He said, I, I couldn't sleep at night. I just felt a burning conviction from the Lord. I needed to break, bake fresh bread for the orphans. And emptied his van but what will they drink as soon as the bakers left ah oh, it was the the milk and van had um, broken down just outside the orphanage he said there's no way we'll be able to get the, the milk transported in time to keep it cold can you use it and so and so they all ate and drank fresh and lovely produce that morning so as i said between 1836 and 1898 he fed, he clothed, and he housed 10,024 orphaned children. He established 117 schools, paying for the teachers' um, salaries. Those schools educated 120,000 children. This is before free state education. And he gave to Christian publishing and missionary organisations a sum that would today be £128 million. And as he said... Um, the gifts came in without one single individual having been asked by me for anything. The reason why I've refrained altogether from soliciting anyone for the help is that the hand of God evidently might be seen in the matter, that thus my fellow believers might be encouraged more and more to trust in him, and that also those who know not the Lord may have a fresh proof that indeed it is not a vain thing to pray to God. Uh, this is his funeral. He died on the 10th of March 1898 and the funeral took place um, four days later. Uh, tens of thousands stood in reverent silence as the city turned out to pay its respect and a thousand children gathered at Orphan House Number 3 in Ashley Down um, to, to give thanks for his life. Okay, um, what have I learned from George Muller? I think there's three things and we're going to turn and have a little bit of time to discuss these in a moment. Let me begin with something that's actually unrelated to prayer. Uh, which is practical love and gospel priority. So I think that in, in, certainly in the West, there is a great confusion, conflict, 
nervousness that those who get very involved in looking after the needs of the poor tend to lose the importance and the priority of proclaiming the gospel. And those who are really strong at telling people you've got to be saved for eternity through the blood of Jesus Christ don't do much slash anything to look after the needs of the poor. But while running the orphanages, Muller preached three times a week from 1830 to 1898, 10,000 sermons. And when he turned 70, his retirement was to become a, life, a full-time uh, evangelist and missionary. And so he spent the next 17 years until he was 87, travelling to 42 countries, preaching an average of once a day and addressing three million people, calling them uh, to put their trust in Jesus. And so he shows you just don't have to choose between caring for the poor and vulnerable in their earthly misery and being zealous to proclaim Jesus to those facing eternal judgment, all of us. He never lost sight of the priority of the gospel of Jesus Christ while transforming the lives of the most forgotten and miserable in our society. And so he prayed earnestly for, as well as everything else he prays, he prays earnestly for the salvation of five friends over his life, three are converted during his life, one is converted just after he dies, and the other um, a year later, having prayed for them every day by name, for decades, decades, decades. Practical love and gospel priority. He was driven by the glory of God and love for people. Funny that, love God, love people. Life's simple, you do what Jesus says. And that meant he was able to do both those things without getting confused or watering down one or losing gospel priority. Practical love and gospel priority. Secondly, confident expectation and humble submission to God's will. So uh, the genie from the Arabian, 1001 Arabian Nights, I am a slave of the lamp, command me and I will obey. Or as um, Aladdin says in, uh, uh, in Robin Williams' version, uh, uh, Vast cosmic powers, tiny little living space until someone rubs the lamp. The genie of the lamp does whatever you say. He has to. It's very different with the God of the Bible. Muller would never claim that prayer was a technique he learned that meant he could get what he needed out of God. He was just confident God was generous and he was humble and confident in his trust in him. So he said, God is almighty. The hearts of all men are in his hands and when God chooses to influence their hearts, they will give. So his confidence was not in the power of prayer, but in the goodness of God. And those two things are very, very different. If you ask Muller, where is your confidence? Is it in the power of prayer? He'd say, no, my confidence is in God. Prayer is just how I speak to God. And he did not get everything he asked for. So his son Elijah died of pneumonia aged 15 months. He actually married twice. Uh, to Mary Groves when she was 25, we saw their stunning wedding photo, but she died after 39 years of marriage, and then he married Susanna Sanger when he was 66. And both his wives and all four of his children died before him. He saw them get sick, he prayed for them, and he watched them die. After his beloved Mary died, he was asked how he'd not been crushed by her loss, and he wrote these words. The last portion of scripture which I read to my precious wife was this. The Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord will give grace and glory. No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. Now, if we have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, we have received grace. We are partakers of grace, and to all such he will give glory also. I said to myself with regard to the later part, 
No good thing will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I've been saved by the blood of Christ. I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised. Uh, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, sick as she is. God will restore her. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart is at rest. I was satisfied with God. You see here, the trust in God. This isn't name it and claim it. Not the way Scott was talking. <laughs> this isn't name it and claim it as an I want and God will do. This was God is good and I will, he will do what he wants. And so at her funeral, extraordinary, he preached uh, Psalm 119.68 as his text. You are good and what you do is good. And it, should we play open that door? It is quite a lot of people in the, in the little room. Let's get some fresh air in here, shall we? Um, so he recognised that there is such a thing as the gift of faith in 1 Corinthians um, 12 to 14. And at some points in his life, he said he had this gift where he could pray things with just an extraordinary confidence that they, that they would happen. But he said, actually, no, no, most of what I'm doing is not that. It's just faith to believe what God has promised, which is accessible to all of us. And so he explicitly rejected the notion that he had this gift of faith from 1 Corinthians 12, 9. He just had a confident expectation and humble submission to God's will. And that brings me really to, to my last point before we have a little bit of time to discuss. When he was asked what the key to his life was, he responded very simply. What do you think he would say the key to his life was? He said, I was satisfied with God. I was satisfied with God. The key to everything was not to have mastered prayer, but that he loved and enjoyed God. He had a deep, rich relationship with a generous Heavenly Father. And so the core of his life was a Bible-saturated knowledge of God. He read his whole Bible cover to cover 200 times in his life. And he didn't just pray as a means to an end. And I think you see this in my favourite quotation. Um, I say this to myself most mornings. He said this, The first great and primary business to which I should attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. So God was the supremely satisfying end, not just the supremely useful means to George Muller. And that is why he was able to do what he did. Because he wanted God more than he wanted the things God might give. And so he had a deep, rich knowledge of God. The first great and primary business to which I should attend every day is to have my soul happy in the Lord. And I guess the key take home for you and me, and the thing that unsettles me but also encourages me um, as, I re- as I've read this book a couple of times, is that God hasn't changed. And actually life isn't so different. One of the things that makes George Muller's life so fascinating is when it took place. Now 1860 might seem like a whole nother world to you and me, but in terms of worldview, it's post-scientific enlightenment type stuff. So this is an age of rationalism and scepticism about the things of religion. So Muller's claims to God's trustworthiness weren't made in a credulous age to people who just believed in genies and fairies and all this sort of things. It was made in an age where there was increasing scepticism about claims to religious authority and religious goodness. So Charles Dickens actually turned up at the orphan houses because he heard, no, all is not as it seems, because obviously as a religious man, Muller had his critics. And so he just appeared one day and said, I want to know what's going on at these houses. 
Muller's response was to get, ask his manager to get the large bunch of keys, and he dropped it into Dickens' hand and said, go where you want. Um, but as in people were sceptical, people looked. And so in his obituaries, the, his obituaries were written by the Times, the Manchester Guardian, all the big newspapers of the day. And they wrote, and they said, look, you know, effectively, we don't believe in Muller's religious God, but you can't deny what's happened. In an age of sceptical inquiry, in an age of scientific rationalism, in an age of journalistic no deference to religion, no one was able to, to find a single chink in the armour that Muller presented of God's faithfulness. Nothing was undermined. There were no stories of, well, he claimed this, but actually this was going on. Or, well, you know, there was this, he had this slush fund. Or, there was none of that. The great journalists of the day poked around and found nothing. The celebrities of the day came to look and found nothing. All that there was was a man on his knees. And uh, the quote I'll leave us with is one which I'm really not happy about, if I'm honest. <laughs> uh, Muller addresses us towards the end of his life. He says, my dear Christian reader, will you not try this way? Will you not know for yourself the preciousness and the happiness of this way of casting all your cares and burdens and necessities upon God? The way is as open to you as to me. Everyone is invited and commanded to trust the Lord, to trust in him with all his heart and to cast his burden upon him and to call upon him in the day of trouble. Will you not do this, my dear brethren in Christ? I long that you may do so. I desire that you may taste the sweetness of that state of heart in which, while surrounded by difficulties and necessities, you can be at peace because you know that the living God, your Father in heaven, cares for you. And I, I guess I think the question that I'd really encourage us to think about as we, uh, as we now have a bit of time to discuss in pairs is, um, well, what strikes you from the life of George Muller? Do get this biography by Roger Steer. It is short and utterly brilliant and compelling reading. Um, but the question is, and this is a question which I don't like the answer to at the moment, if I'm perfectly honest, is my life as a Christian, when I look at it over the last five years, ten years, depending on how long you've been following the Lord Jesus, is it a move deeper into the experience of trusting God in prayer, confident of his good provision, or is it a move to increasing worldly security that means I don't have to trust God as much? So if I'm honest, I think I, my life looks like I'm increasingly, as the years go by, making myself secure so that I don't actually have to trust God because life feels a whole lot less stressful when I, when I have provision rather than God <laughs> to rely on. Um, and it's just, just be good. Now, you've got to live in the reality of your own life and we're not all called to the same thing, but it'd be worth just discussing uh, what might it look like. You know, how, do we share Muller's confidence in God? And what might it look like for us to grow in trust in God rather than to grow in worldly security. And I, like I say, it's complicated, and I'm not going to pretend that I can help you on that, if I'm honest. Um, because I, I think most of us, you'll find, as you grow up, you grow and you accumulate, you settle down. I mean, there's, there's a rightfulness to that when you've got to provide for others. Um, but it is just worth wrestling with this question of, uh, do I think God, do I have the same view of God that Muller did? And what would it look like for me to trust him more?
Um, why don't we spend uh, a few minutes, uh, break down into twos and threes, have a chat um, about uh, uh, the things that struck you from the life of George Muller, and, and in particular about that question of um, how can I grow in trust in God, um, and uh, how might we... Let's, share ideas with one another in twos and threes how might i grow in that experience of prayer not as a um a ritual i have to perform to assuage my guilty conscience or a last resort when i'm desperate but as my first and greatest resource from a conviction that god is good and every good thing comes from him let's spend a few minutes uh, in discussion and then i'll call us back to order
Let's pause there. I wonder, are there any um, particular questions, either uh, just about his life or any particular things that came up from discussion? Otherwise, we will turn to pray. Anything anybody wants to clarify or ask? Yes, Ben. You mentioned something about him kind of trusting in what God has promised. Yeah. Um, could you just maybe get into that? Because maybe that's uh, be interesting to hear what you mean by that. Because that's body language I've heard a lot growing up, but probably in a slightly different way. Yeah. So he, and I think there is room for people to, to differ on this, but uh, I think I'm probably good at nuancing the, the life out of Scripture rather than just trusting you. Yeah. What does Jesus mean when he says, therefore I tell you, don't worry about your life, what you will eat or your body, what you will wear. For life is more than food, the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens, they don't sow or reap. They have no store in or barn, yet God feeds them. How much more valuable are you than the birds? Who of you by worrying can add a single hour to your life? Since you cannot do this very little thing, why do you worry about the rest? Now, um, there's a continuum, I think. You've got to understand, Jesus speaks in deliberately broad, unqualified ways to make points. But he is clearly saying God provides. Um, how does God provide? Well, and I think Luther was helpful on this. The, uh, God provides by the farmer, um, so uh, ploughing the field and sowing and then reaping the harvest, and by the cartman bringing it, the grain to the miller and the miller making the bread. You know, so God provides through means. But the, I guess the question is, uh, where am I on that? So Muller is at one end of this continuum. So you just take God at his word. I'm just going to pray to him. Or we can be at ours where, well, so long as I've said a, a quick prayer at the, at the beginning of a meal, I've, you know, I've, done, my, I've done my bit. I think, um, I think Jesus would say, look, uh, is your life dominated by um, fears and worries that act as if I've got to do everything? So I struggle to take a Sabbath rest and I'm continually thinking about how these things happen. Or am I aware of God's provision, even as I'm usually the means? And it's so. I think I think you do have to think carefully about verses like this. Uh, and I don't think all of us. And Muller wouldn't say that all of us should land where he landed on it. But he would say all I'm doing actually is taking God at His word. So I, th and I think his point is not if you don't do this, you don't trust God. His point is, look, I'm not doing anything exceptional. I am literally just taking Jesus at His word. Now, how far you want to walk down that road, that's I think between your conscience and God, and see as God leads you. Um, but I'm not doing anything weird, and I'm not doing anything outside of what God has promised. I'm just, I'm just getting on with. And it's not like I'm asking for gold and silver and cake. I'm just saying daily bread. Yeah. Um, does that? Yeah. Anything else? Otherwise, we'll. Why don't we spend a couple of minutes um, praying with one another, uh, just as we've uh, been chatting, and then uh, I'll let you go get children and coffee for our final session and our final session for the avoidance of doubt begins at um, 11.15 you will have already checked out of your rooms so. uh, let's, uh, let's pray in, uh, in little groups and then um, I'll, uh, I'll close this in a couple of minutes